On July 20, 1969, the Apollo Lunar Module Eagle, piloted by Buzz Aldrin, made contact with the surface of the moon. Seven hours later, Neil Armstrong became the first person to step onto the lunar surface. This was an immense achievement for all of humanity and, in my opinion, mankind's greatest moment. The world watched and was amazed. Apollo 11's success offered to the world the belief that dreams are possible, and if mankind sets their mind toward a worthy cause, anything can be achieved. Now, imagine what it would have been like if the Apollo program had been a joint venture between the U.S. and Soviet Union. Two Cold War enemies joining together in the pursuit of something greater than their differences. If Kennedy had lived, this could have been what happened. You're listening to Conspiracy, Season 1, JFK. What will you believe? To see the show notes and documents for this episode and the season of Conspiracy, go to auroraborisinc.com. That's O-U-R-O-B-O-R-O-S-I-N-K dot com. And if you are enjoying Conspiracy, please rate the show and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. In his inaugural address on January 20, 1961, President Kennedy subtly referred to President Eisenhower's farewell speech and his warning about the growing power of the military-industrial complex. Finally, to those nations who would make themselves our adversary, we offer not a pledge, but a request that both sides begin anew the quest for peace. Before the dark powers of destruction, unleashed by science, engulf all humanity in planned or accidental self-destruction. We dare not tempt them with weakness, for only when our arms are sufficient beyond doubt can we be certain beyond doubt that they will never be employed. But neither can two great and powerful groups of nations take comfort from our present course, both sides overburdened by the cost of modern weapons, both rightly alarmed by the steady spread of the deadly atom, yet both racing to alter that uncertain balance of terror that stays the hand of mankind's final war. Let both sides for the first time formulate serious and precise proposals for the inspection and control of arms and bring the absolute power to destroy other nations under the absolute control of all nations. Let both sides seek to invoke the wonders of science instead of its terrors. Together, let us explore the stars, conquer the desert, eradicate disease, tap the ocean depths, and encourage the arts and commerce. And if a beachhead of cooperation may push back the jungle of suspicion, let both sides join in creating a new endeavor, not a new balance of power, 
but a new world of law where the strong are just and the weak secure and the peace preserved. After two world wars and the then-current Cold War, I believe it was important to Kennedy to forge a new future. A better future for the American people and all people of Earth. The devastation that took place and the loss of life should have been enough to humble anyone, and yet, the military-industrial complex was using the current political and economical situation as an excuse to advance its agenda. Any cooperation between the U.S. and Soviet Union would be detrimental to the military-industrial complex. As I have stated previously, I think it was prudent for President Harry Truman to create the Majestic 12 Group and to quietly control the UFO ET intelligence situation. If I had to inject my own thoughts and wishes into the overall situation, I would say it should have been just as important to formulate a plan for future disclosure as the UF intelligence was analyzed and better understood. At times, secrecy and management of intelligence is of grave importance, but in the end, informed decisions must always be made with an effort for transparency. If Kennedy's plan had worked and the world started to work together, it would undercut the power of MJ-12 and shift the development of weapon technology to space technology and humanitarian technology. As Kennedy began his administration, he would immediately reach out to the Soviet Union leader Nikita Khrushchev. On February 22, 1962, Kennedy would write the first of a series of letters to Khrushchev, promising cooperation in areas of disagreement and finding peaceful solutions to world problems, and to begin this endeavor, Kennedy asked for a meeting. Kennedy wrote, I am sure that you are conscious, as I am, of the heavy responsibility which rests upon our two governments and world affairs. I agree with your thought that if we could find a measure of cooperation on some of these current issues, this, in itself, would be a significant contribution to the problem of ensuring a peaceful and orderly world. I hope it will be possible, before too long, for us to meet personally for an informal exchange of views in regard to some of these matters. I hope such exchanges might assist us in working out a responsible approach to our differences with the view to their ultimate resolution for the benefit of peace and security throughout the world. You may be sure, Mr. Chairman, that I intend to do everything I can toward developing a more harmonious relationship between our two countries. Unfortunately, any progress between the two nations would become hindered by Alan Dulles and the CIA after a covert operation in Cuba, now known as the Bay of Pigs. The covert operation involved the invasion of Cuba by approximately 2,000 Cuban exiles that opposed Fidel Castro's Cuban Revolution. They planned to establish a beachhead and then call for international recognition and assistance for the liberated Cuban territory. Dulles briefed Kennedy and informed him that it had been approved by President Eisenhower himself. Dulles was confident that the plan would succeed, and so explained the operation. Kennedy had misgivings about the whole affair, but followed through on the plan with some strict conditions, limiting overt U.S. military involvement. The U.S. military would not be involved in openly fighting Cuban forces during the invasion, and could only intervene once the Cuban exiles had established their beachhead and expanded into Cuban territory, and the U.S. would not provide air cover to the operation. On April 17, 1961, the operation went forward only to become a botched operation and a political nightmare. One political consequence of the whole affair, Alan Dulles resigning that coming November. 
On April 22nd, Kennedy would meet with Eisenhower at Camp David with Cuba as the agenda. It is unclear as to everything that was discussed, but if Kennedy's actions later give any hint, it was clear that both men felt the CIA needed to be wrangled in. To offer proof, I'll remind you of Kennedy's three national security action memoranda, issued on June 28, 1961, two months after the Bay of Pigs. It placed covert CIA operations under the control of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. These memoranda would also be followed by an important message from and a meeting with Khrushchev. In May, only a few weeks after the Bay of Pigs, Khrushchev responded to Kennedy saying, We share the ideas expressed by you concerning the necessity of avoiding dangerous complications, which create a threat to peace and ensuring peaceful coexistence and the peaceful development of our countries. Unfortunately, the international situation in connection with well-known events relating to Cuba has recently become somewhat heated, and a definite public disagreement in the relations between our two countries has taken place. We hope, however, that the differences which have recently arisen may be resolved in time, and that the relations between the Soviet Union and the United States will improve. Your initiative with respect to such a meeting has found a favorable echo among us, and we agree with you as to the usefulness of such an exchange of views. I confirm by this letter, by acceptance of your proposal for the meeting. The time and place of the meeting, as proposed, are acceptable to me, namely June 3rd or 4 in Vienna. The agreement to meet in Vienna took place on June 4th, but Kennedy would walk away feeling defeated and discouraged. He felt that he had been bested in an unproductive ideological debate with the master debater. Commenting about the summit and Khrushchev, he told a New York Times reporter that it was the worst thing in my life. He savaged me. Kennedy's outreach to the Soviet Union would eventually bear fruit in the last months of his presidency, but not without much confrontation and turmoil in the intervening period. The April 1961 Bay of Pigs incident had ripped away any veneer of the Kennedy administration's pledge to cooperate with the Soviets in a quest for peace. To further divide between nations, Cuba would once again take center stage in October 1962. The U.S. and USSR would come to the brink of nuclear war over the Cuban Missile Crisis. But thankfully, some adept diplomacy would aid both sides in avoiding a war. It would be less than one year later that Kennedy would once again take up efforts for international cooperation. The difference in diplomacy this time? Outer space. In September 1963, President Kennedy launched a groundbreaking initiative to get the USSR and USA to cooperate in joint space and lunar missions. Behind the scenes, there was a secretive attempt by the Kennedy administration to gain access to classified UFO files. Leaked documents reveal that Kennedy instructed the CIA to release classified UFO files to NASA as part of the cooperative space effort with the Soviet Union. This effort would have ensured eventual public release of the classified UFO files by both the U.S. and USSR. At the United States General Assembly on September 20, 1963, President Kennedy would give a speech addressing his desire to work with the Soviets, saying, Finally, in a field where the United States and the Soviet Union have a special capacity, in the field of space, there is room for new cooperation, for further joint efforts in the regulation and exploration of space. I include among these possibilities a joint expedition to the moon. 
According to Khrushchev's eldest son, Dr. Sergei Khrushchev, this was not the first time that Kennedy had made proposals for joint space and lunar missions with the Soviets. Sergei revealed that at the June 1961 Vienna summit, less than 10 days after Kennedy's famous May 25 speech before a joint session of the U.S. Congress, in which he promised to land a man on the moon, Kennedy secretly proposed joint space and lunar missions to his father. Khrushchev declined. As Sergei later explained, My father rejected this because he thought that through this, the Americans could find out how weak we were, and maybe it would push them to begin a war. After the September 1963 UN speech, Khrushchev would once again reject Kennedy's offer. At the same time, substantial opposition was mounting in both NASA and the U.S. Congress. Just before his UN speech, Kennedy briefed his NASA administrator, James Webb, about his initiative and asked, Are you sufficiently in control to prevent my being undercut in NASA if I do that? The idea was already a hard sell to the Soviets, and selling it to the American people and Congress might be near impossible. If Webb couldn't hold ranks from inside NASA, the whole effort would collapse. In a series of interviews beginning in 1997, Dr. Sergei Khrushchev said after his father initially refused Kennedy's September 20, 1963 offer of joint space, that in the weeks after the rejection, his father had second thoughts. In one interview, Sergei said, I walked with him sometime in late October or November, and he told me about all these things. He told me that we have to think about this and maybe accept this idea. I asked why. They would know everything. Our secrets. He said it's not important. The Americans can design everything they want. It is a very well-developed country. But we will have to save money. It's very expensive. He thought also of the political achievement of all these things, that then they would begin to trust each other more. After the Cuban Missile Crisis, his trust with President Kennedy was raised very high. He thought that it's possible to deal with this president. He didn't think that they could be friends, but he really wanted to avoid the war. So through his cooperation, they could sojourn their thoughts on these achievements. These interviews with Sergei give incredible insight into his father's thought process about a joint U.S.-Soviet venture. It also shows the two leaders had developed a rapport with each other. The Soviets would launch an unmanned spacecraft, codenamed Cosmos 21, thought to be for testing their Venera probe technology, into space on a mission to either Mars or Venus. But it would fail in low Earth orbit on November 11, 1963. The next day, on November 12, President Kennedy issued National Security Action Memorandum number 271. It was addressed to James Webb and with the subject header, Cooperation with the USSR on Outer Space Matters. The key passage stated, I would like you to assume personally the initiative and central responsibility within the government for development of a program of substantive cooperation with the Soviet Union in the field of outer space, including the development of specific technical proposals. It seems that after Cosmos 21 failure, Khrushchev changed his mind and accepted Kennedy's offer for a joint space operation. Sergei Khrushchev would confirm that his father finally accepted Kennedy's offer in early November 1963, most likely due to the Soviet's Cosmos 21 failure. This memo would ensure that the State Department and other U.S. government agencies would have access to the information to be shared with the Soviets under the Cooperative Space Initiative. In addition to the Confidential National Security Action Memorandum, Kennedy issued a more highly classified 
top-secret memorandum to the director of the CIA, John McCone. Dated the same day of November 12, 1963, the subject header of the file reads, Classification Review of All UFO Intelligence Files Affecting National Security. According to the top-secret memorandum that was leaked, Kennedy went on to say, I have instructed James Webb to develop a program with the Soviet Union in joint space and lunar operations. It would be very helpful if you would have the high-threat UFO cases reviewed with the purpose of identification of bona fides as opposed to classified CIA and USAF sources. When this data has been sorted out, I would like you to arrange a program of data sharing with NASA where unknowns are a factor. This will help NASA mission directors and their defensive responsibilities. I would like an interim report on the data review no later than February 1, 1964. Kennedy's reference to classified CIA and USAF sources of UFO reports shows that he was aware that they were systematically separated into classified and unclassified files. The USAF and the other military services were secretly required to direct their most important UFO files through a system created for reporting vital intelligence data by the Joint Chief Air and Naval Publication, 146. This is supported by a memorandum by Brigadier General Bolander on October 1969. He wrote, Reports of unidentified flying objects, which could affect national security, are made in accordance with JNAP 146 or Air Force Manual 55-11, and they are not part of the Blue Book system. This shows that there were two sets of UFO files being collected by the USAF during the Kennedy and later presidential administrations. Those with least national security significance were made available to the public through Project Blue Book, the official public investigation of UFOs by the United States Air Force that formally ended in 1970. The more classified intelligence would go to the CIA. In particular, the CIA's Counterintelligence Department which controlled access and reported directly to the MJ-12 group. Requesting the CIA to share UFO files with NASA would in turn lead to its sharing this information with the State Department and other agencies as stipulated in NSAM-271. Kennedy was, therefore, directly confronting the CIA over its ultimate control of classified UFO files. Kennedy was aware that the CIA was the lead agency for ensuring the release of classified UFO files, not the U.S. Air Force. Project Blue Book, the Air Force investigation into UFOs, therefore, was nothing more than an expensive public relations exercise. Three months earlier, a hotline between Kennedy and Khrushchev was established, and according to the New York Times, the direct link, which was available 24 hours a day, made it possible for the heads of the two governments to exchange messages in minutes. After checking the typed message against the original copy, the teletype tape would be fed into a teletype transmitter. As the message goes out, it is encoded by a scrambling device to prevent anyone from reading it at relay points along the 10,000-mile cable circuit. In Moscow, the message went through a decoding device and then appears on a teletype machine in the Kremlin near the office of Premier Khrushchev. During the Six-Day Arab-Israeli War, a leaked NSA document suggests that Kennedy and Khrushchev used it soon after it was established. In the alleged November 12 hotline conversation, Kennedy and Khrushchev discussed the importance of their respective UFO working groups dealing with the UFO issue to avoid the risk of future conflict. 
Kennedy stated, I have also instructed our CIA to provide me with full disclosure on the phantom aspects and classified programs in which I can better assess the UFO situation. In summary, on November 12, 1963, President John F. Kennedy had reached an agreement with Soviet Premier Nikita Khrushchev on joint space missions and the sharing of classified UFO files. This agreement required both leaders to instruct their respective UFO working groups to share information. Kennedy did this through a November 12 top-secret memorandum to the director of the CIA to share UFO files with NASA and the USSR. This action sparked Kennedy's final showdown with the Majestic 12. Kennedy's 1963 efforts to end the Cold War and cooperate with the USSR on joint space missions and share classified UFO files with the Soviets could not be allowed to happen. So, Kennedy's top-secret memo to the CIA director was relayed by William Coby to James Angleton in CIA counterintelligence. How do we know this? Well, on the bottom of Kennedy's memorandum to the CIA, next to the signature space, appears the following handwritten note. Response from Colby. Angleton has MJ-12 Directive, 112063. Here, Colby is acknowledging that Angleton had the MJ Directive. But which directive? The Project Environment Directive. And, two days later, the environment becomes wet. Next time on Conspiracy, everything comes to fruition on that fateful day in November. We look at everything that happened on November 22, 1963, the day John F. Kennedy was assassinated. If you think you know what happened that day, I promise you don't. What will you believe? This is an Aurora Boris Inc. production.